welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 136. And before we get started, I would like to announce that Alicia White will be the judge for the Macrofab uh, Design Contest, Blink and LED, sponsored by Mauser. Alicia White is the host of the, uh, or one of the hosts for the Embedded FM Podcast, and we chatted with Alicia on the MacFab Engineering Podcast, episode 110. Tell me how people hurt you. Her Twitter account is at Logical Elegance. Thanks a lot, Alicia. That's going to be a lot of fun because I think she's going to bring like a completely different aspect to it. Yeah, I think so too. I, I, I'm, I'm super excited for like the judging base because it's not like one mindset. Uh, I, think, I think it's actually going to be really hard to pick from the submissions because we already have something like 15 or something submissions. I can't remember how many it is. And uh, they're all like super different and really creative and a lot of fun. So it's going to be it's going to be great. Y'all have one week left to submit. Yeah. Remember, all you got to do is blink an LED. Yeah. Blink an LED. Simplest thing in the world, right? Oh, well, and, and, <laughs> and spoiler alert, one of the uh, one of the submissions, Parker and I were just looking at it. <laughs> There's a guy who connected basically two LEDs with some resistors to the mains lines. <laughs> It's just two resistors and two LEDs that he connected directly into the wall. <laughs> yeah, so it blinks at 60 hertz, which is technically <laughs> a blinking LED. Technically, he did it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> All right. So, Parker, let's uh, let's cover your stuff. What you been up to? That wagon chime module I talked about last week, it's got that conformal coating on it. So I tried to clean it or, like, remove it off, I guess. So I used brake clean because that's kind of like, the solvent the choice for mechanics mm-hmm. it that did not remove it it didn't even make it, it didn't even make it soft it just didn't it was not phased it just made it greasy right <laughs> or actually it removed all the grossness off the board so at least it's clean but it did not remove the conformal coating at all i think the next thing i'm going to try is just like some aircraft you know that aircraft paint remover that you can buy in a spray can mm-hmm. and just coat that and yep. hopefully it doesn't eat anything else besides the conformal coating wear some nitrile gloves or whatever because that that airplane stuff will eat the first like 15 layers of skin off your hands <laughs> <laughs> that's like all the layers of skin i think yeah yeah pretty much um <laughs> you can always try the uh the old uh tested and true screwdriver method that takes conformal coating off <laughs> You know, actually, this stuff seems to be really attached to whatever it is. And I tried, like, mechanically removing it. Yeah. It doesn't really want to flake either. It's really stuck on there. Oh, it doesn't chip. Wow. Okay, so they use some really aggressive stuff. Yeah. So I don't know what it is. So so is it is it kind of yellow uh, in color? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's yellowish in color. Okay, because that might be the UV cure stuff. The UV cure stuff, that stuff dries unbelievably hard. And I'll put it this way. is when I was trying to get the iron to fix the when i was replacing the capacitors last week uh it did not want to melt either hmm i wonder what the what kind of stuff that is i don't know hopefully someone has an answer in our slack channel <laughs> <laughs> i i've i've had a couple of situations where i've wanted to take a conformal coating off of a board and in general it's really difficult to do um most of the time you just kind of like scrape at it with a screwdriver or something like that kind of pick away at it i've even called manufacturers before to be like hey i want to take your stuff off do you have a solvent and usually the answer is just like no go away you know (laughs) (laughs) there's this uh silicon based compound we're using for a customer right now it's like really goopy it's it's like 
I, I've actually never seen a substance this thick before that's still like a fluid, I guess. But it's got a, it's got a remover for it. Well, a lot, a lot of times they they're they're intended to be. You can open them up so you can repair things underneath them and then seal it back up. In fact, some of them you can you can just put a little another dab of the stuff and it'll remelt into whatever it is. Especially if it's urethane, you can actually get away with that. So sometimes you know they 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 do the whole environmental protection thing, but they're also repairable. Sometimes, especially with like the real dark, uh, hefty urethanes they just dry like a brick and then it's game over you know yeah you can't even chisel it off without breaking parts off oh that's it's awful so hopefully i can get this stuff removed if not then i'll just start you know i'll just crank the iron even hotter to get through it <laughs> just just melt through it just try to melt through that thing get your big like stick iron thing that you have oh you know that huge soldering iron that you have <laughs> you just melt it all off that that weller gun yeah, that would work. That thing's like, oh man, that's like a three hundred watt iron, I think. Yeah, I bet you'd go right through there. Yeah, that would probably work. I'll just use that. <laughs> <laughs> you could also just for a short period of time take a torch to it and see what happens. Oh, see if it'll like burn off. Yeah, I mean, just do like quick swiping motions around it, so you're not like just blasting it with a few thousand degrees. Yeah, I can try that with a propane torch after um, after the podcast. Or I can try the acetylene torch after that. <laughs> you pull it away, and there's a hole through the board, and yeah, all the components. punches a hole. Yeah, <laughs> it probably won't work again after that. Yeah. Well, yeah. good luck. Thanks. <laughs> so the uh, next next thing I've been working on is that powered mirror module, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got the board, the schematics all done, and the boards laid out, and I decided to use. Uh, well, I was using the BTM seven seven four two G motor drivers because I already had them designed, mm-hmm. and at the time I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll have plenty of space to use these ginormous motor controllers." And it ended up I did not have that much space because I took the door panel off, and the hole that's in the door is pretty small. Like it's actually only a little bit bigger than the panel facade. I guess is a good way. To- <laughs> to explain it sure yeah where it's labels like what what it is and stuff like that the little chrome piece that's on the door so it's only a little bit bigger than that so i had to actually shrink the board down quite a bit and so i found the uh some smaller motor drivers that work i think they only pull they they work with two amps instead of like eight of the btm 7742 but again these powered mirror Motors only pull like, you know, 400 milliamps, so it's not a lot of power. Mm. And so these are DVR8872, and they're in an SOIC 8 style package, except it's got a thermal pad underneath. So it's like a nine pin package, I guess. Okay. So, so there's just, I see, I'm looking at the uh, data sheet, the Texas instrument data sheet for it. And the, in the block diagram, the output is just basically. You know, MOSFET pairs that just hammer it, basically. Hammer the motor. Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So it's it's a H-bridge in a SOIC 8 package that's got kind of a motor driver front end kind of thing on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's probably got some glue logic in there that, you know, handles how the H-bridge functions. They, they call it core logic. Core logic? Yeah. CI <laughs> <laughs> thing, right? Yeah, probably. I, I bet you they have, yeah, CoreLogic TM or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I got that design, so I, I'll post up the p- 
picture of the layout and stuff on the on the podcast notes. It's got all the typical mounting holes and all that crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to order that this week, and hopefully in a couple weeks I have the board done and tested and working. I hope. And then then you can move on to the next thing that doesn't work with the Jeep. Yeah, the next thing that doesn't work, like <laughs> everything else. Yeah. You're going to show up <laughs> next week with something new. I'm I'm making a prediction right now. Actually, here is the new thing. <laughs> we don't even have to wait a week. It's right here. Cuz on the on the Jeep, on the old Jeep, the red Jeep, the radio was pretty good in it, and so I modified the radio to have Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. And the wagon the radio that's in it is not stock anymore. It's some crappy aftermarket thing that was installed probably a couple of years ago. And it doesn't have Bluetooth. It doesn't have auxiliary. It just has, hmm. funny enough, it has satellite connectivity. But I don't have a subscription to it, so I can't use it. So I was thinking, like, okay, let me find, like, a stock radio for this vehicle, and I'll just put it in. The problem is the stock radios for the wagons are a little bit rare, and so they're kind of pricey. And so I started looking for, because it's like, it's a standard one DIN slot, which is a standard size for, for car radios. It just, just educate me. Uh, is that really how they're measured? Is it considered a DIN? Yeah. Yeah. So like the, it, the it's about six and a half inches wide by like two and a half inches tall. Yeah. Or two inches tall. That's one DIN. And then there's two DIN, three DIN, et cetera, which is just stacked up. Right. I didn't know it was called DIN though. It's similar to like rack mount style where one DIN is a certain unit of size. Well, yeah, in rack mount, I guess they call them U's, right? Yeah, U's. A one U, two U. Yeah, and it's 1.75 inches per U. I think that's what it is. Something like that. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I started looking around. I'm like, okay, let's let's go a step further than the Jeep radio and let's design our own radio. You know, because that's the next step, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. Because I can't, I couldn't find anything that I liked. Because I, I, I don't want it to be all fancy and new. I kind of want it to look retro. Uh, you know, have like a the product of its era, which is like a VFD display and knobs and buttons and stuff, instead of having LEDs and crazy blinking stuff. So I started shopping around for for radio modules, and I found some like ICs that work for that do FM and AM demodulation. And they basically spit out audio. Mm-hmm. And so you would just pump that right into probably your um, amplifier multiplexer. Cause so that way you can like get Bluetooth in it. And you can also do uh, auxiliary in. And you control those chips for your like I2C or SPI. I think like Silicon Labs make it. I, the part number is escaping me. And then I was chatting about this in the Slack channel. And uh, Hyron of and not XOR suggested, hey, what if you used a signal-defined radio for your front end? Because then you can sample any frequency and listen to any frequency out there. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a really good idea. Let's look at that. And You're going to pick up all the number stations and things like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can pick up anything. So I started looking around, and he suggested the RTL SDR because it's a very low cost one, and you, I think you can pick it up on Amazon for twenty bucks. All right. Um, so I picked up like the twenty five dollar model, which comes with like an antenna and stuff, just so I can test test it. Yeah. And I got that over the weekend. I hooked it up to my my Windows computer and downloaded some software to so I can just listen to stations, and it works. You can listen to FM, AM. Uh, with this model, you can listen to. I was listening to some weird, like beeps and boops coming off of some like ham radio stuff. Huh. 
someone was like transmitting some data and I could listen to it. I had no idea what it was, what I was actually picking up, but you could listen to it. But yeah, so you can, it works really well. And I think what I'm going to do with it is I'll probably design a, a old school looking radio with my, I have a big, like four character by 40 character VFD display. Yeah. It's a big, big beefy VFD display. And Put some buttons on it. Run the uh, the uh, signal defined radio through that interface through Raspberry Pi. Nice. I I did find some like I, I just searched like Raspberry Pi signal defined radio car entertainment systems because there's there's actually quite a bit of projects out there that that already do this, but they use a touchscreen as the interface, and I'm like, I don't want that. That's like the last thing I want is a touchscreen in the wagon, <laughs> and so I'm gonna build the front end or the the human interface uh device the hid will be a knobs buttons really nice vfd display and then now we'll, those will probably interface with a microcontroller so that the interface is responsive and then that will talk to the raspberry pi and do uh, basically like talk serially to the pi and the pi will control the signal defined radio and there's some also some cool things i feature creeped onto this oh nice the easiest way to get internet would be just to buy a 4G modem USB dongle. Because basically the Raspberry Pi has USB now that's, you know, has a system hub and everything. So you can just keep, if you want a new feature, you just plug it in to the USB. And so I'm going to put a 4G modem in it. So that way I can get like Pandora, YouTube through the VFD display. <laughs> So that's going to be interesting yeah. how I'm going to figure out how to make that interface work. Like, do you have to scroll and type in what you want on YouTube? Don't know yet for what it searches for. Um, but then I want to add GPS, <laughs> but not for actually doing like yeah. navigation or anything. I want to do GPS so that you can actually control the signal to find radio with the GPS. And so if you're driving down the road, it can look and say, hey, the International Space Station is right above you right now. Do you want to switch over and listen to the, the International Space Station? And so you can click yes. That's a great idea. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty jealous. I mean, this sounds like a pretty hefty project, actually. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and, and, of course, while you're going on on this, I've got two feature creeps that are going through my head that could make this really freaking awesome. All right, and what are they? Uh, well, it, it all depends on how much space you have. I have the entire back of the dash is empty on this wagon. Well, okay, then you got plenty of space for this. I'm, I'm going to upgrade and make three feature creeps. So here's the thing. First of all, I think you should make the front panel that covers everything, I think you should do that out of wood, like actual wood, like make it super nice, like you did on your on your um, your other Jeep, <laughs> yeah, yeah, where you use curly maple to make a hand hold. Oh, the hand grab, yeah. Make make a wooden thing. Now this this is more me than you probably, but I have a vacuum tube preamp that runs on one tube and it runs on twelve volts. It has a switcher in it that boosts up to three hundred volts. Uh, but it'll handle all your signals. And and if you had a little vacuum tube with a little window cut in the wood where you could see the tube, that would look so cool. Oh my <laughs> that would look awesome. But no, here, okay, so w I can share that design. It's it's a really simple design, um, but it runs on 12 volts for the whole thing. So you could easily do that. Now, one other, one other thing that would be really cool is if across the front of your VFD, you put a clear you know, either capacitive touch or resistive touch elements so that you could have a touch VFD. Oh, 
Yeah, make a touch VFD. Yeah. Now that would be cool. <laughs> now you now you got some real stuff to go, to go play around with. Yeah. <laughs> I do I do like the tube preamp for it. Yeah. And and I've 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 actually built that tube preamp and tested it. Uh works. Nothing like you could install it right now. No problems. And it would work. And then just feed that into some solid state. Well, and, and uh, you know what I did with this tube preamp that's that's kind of goofy? I sort of defeated the purpose, but at the same time, it's still like tubey. What I did was I have an input op amp that's a buffer. Then it hits two tube stages and it has an output uh, op amp as a buffer. So both the input and the output are solid state. It just has tubes in the middle. And the reason I did that is such that you could plug anything into it and have high impedance and you could output any it to basically anything and have like a known low impedance. You could dump those op amps if you didn't want them and just run the tube. But I would still suggest using the the op amps just so that you have you know a known thing. It's it, tubes are known too. They're just a little bit more finicky. You know, and and the whole thing with this preamp is that you you're you don't really need much gain, so it's way overkill. But it's kind of cute to have a little tube sitting in there, do it, and it it's actually doing work. It's just not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Actually, you should make it exposed so someone's like, "Oh, what's that?" and they touch it and burn their finger. <laughs> well, unfortunately, this is a the uh, tube preamps don't get super hot. Ah, dang. The, the the power tubes are the ones that get too. I I checked the data sheet the other day, and it was uh, it runs at two hundred and twenty degrees Celsius. <laughs> Oh boy, that's pretty hot. Oh yeah, it'll burn the shit out of you. Now, is that the internal grids or is that the actual outside of the tube? Uh, from the data sheet, it said glass temperature, so that would be the outside. Holy cow! Yeah, that's really hot. That's pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. But no, I think t- a touch VFD. Nobody's got that. That's super cool. <laughs> but it has to have all all the functions have to work by just pressing big buttons, though. Yeah, that's what I really want. So you got like, switch channels or volume adjusting and. Stuff like that is done via knobs and buttons and switches and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, actually, it would be kind of funny. Um, you know how a lot of newer systems, I say newer, they've been around for a while, but you turn on your car and the whole screen like pops out and rotates up? Yeah. It'd be funny if it was a VFD that popped out and rotated oh. <laughs> <laughs> Like get a bigger VFD? Because the 4x20 is pretty good because it's like about one DIN size. Yeah. But get a taller one. Get a dual. Yeah, I'm sure that's expensive as hell. And then it just comes out and flips up, and it's actually an old-school VFD display. That would be funny. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So instead of feature creeping my project, Stephen, what have you been working on? So uh, the U-Tracer now being done, I've started to kind of like send it out to people um, and start talking about it. And one of the people I sent it off to was actually the original designer of the U-Tracer itself. Um, I sent him an email at like... 10 o'clock at night here, which he's in Holland, I believe. So that's, I don't know, whatever time Holland was at that time. Um, and he got back to me and like... Holland o'clock. Holland o'clock, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holland standard time. I wonder how many listeners we have from Holland. Yeah. Tell us what time it is when it's 10 o'clock in Colorado. But uh, regardless, the uh, he got back to me in like five minutes after I sent it. And he was super excited about the project. Um, and he immediately went and threw it up on his website because he has like a whole page. Like I think he calls it testimonials where um, anyone who's built one and sends in pictures, he'll post it up and he threw it up there. We uh, We have a link to it. It's kind of a long link. So we'll just post it up on the show notes and you can go check it out. The website is actually dosforever.com. I guess that's 
the website that he had. But if you go to Google and type in U Tracer, you it'll also uh, direct you there. And uh, the email that I wrote to him and a handful of pictures are up on his blog. So if you want to go check that out, that's up there. One of the things, though, that he he was mentioning to me, he was asking, hey, would you be willing to share your design files with people? Because he has a mailing list that he said is about 1,600 people or so. I told him, of course, yeah, I'd be happy to share it. Uh, but uh, one of the things I wanted to do was it's always kind of been my goal to start a blog myself such that all of these projects that I do, I actually have a repository that I can put them and I can just like, you know, puke out all of my ideas into one location. So I ended up doing that last week. Uh, so I have started a new blog. If you go there, there is absolutely nothing at the moment. <laughs> at least it loads. Yeah, it lo- yeah, yeah. I was I was kind of hoping to have it ready for today such that people could see my first post, which is the U-Tracer design, the whole thing. But I w- really wanted to get nice pictures because the, the pictures I was getting from my phone and my camera uh, were just not really great. So I did purchase a, a light box such that I can take, you know, some semi nice pictures with it uh, you know however much me not being a photographer you know i'm gonna get every fighting chance i can at taking good pictures so i'm most of my blog is actually or this first post is actually written it's just i have tons of little areas where it's like add picture here you know have an arrow pointing to this kind of stuff so <laughs> uh regardless the uh, the new blog is uh, my new website which is analogeng.com that's analogeng.com which I have also changed my Twitter handle to. So my new Twitter handle is at Analog Eng. I figured I kind of wanted to pull everything together, and having Macro in my Twitter name and stuff is kind of antiquated at this point. So kind of making a whole new ecosystem with that. So And AnalogEng.com was available. So yay, I got it. You're going to make me go through all the old podcasts, old podcast notes, and update your social information. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully I'll never change it ever again, because I actually kind of like Analog Eng. That's a really good one. I think I think it's a good one, and I'm, I'm happy that I got that. I, I did also get the um, domain circuitchat.com, which I might, you know, in the future turn into something else. Maybe that's a forum. I don't know. That's more projects, more more stuff to do. More stuff to do, yeah. So I looked it up. We have 28 listeners from the Netherlands. Oh, really? Very cool. Do they know what time it is? <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, yeah, so I, I've got analogeng.com. Very soon, probably within the next few days, I'll actually have my post up because actually right after this podcast, I'm going to pull out my camera and start taking a bunch of pictures and loading things up. Uh, Ronald Decker over at uh, the U-Tracer, you know, he's the guy who designed it. Um, he, he said, as soon as I have my blog ready, he's going to blast it out to all of his people. So look for me on Twitter. I'll be posting my my blog and uh, I guess maybe Macrofab might pimp it also. Thumbs up? Probably. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, that'll be fun. So look out for that. And um, as I as I you know put more stuff up, all the projects I do on the podcast, I hope to basically port over to the uh, the new blog, such that there's you know more ability to check them out. That actually goes into one other small project that I'm kind of doing on the side right now. Um, I I had to do a project with a power supply the other day, and I, I just ran over to my storage facility and grabbed whatever power supply I could find, and the one that was closest to me was my Hickok uh, 5055, which is a old vacuum tube power supply, but, you know, it's just a power supply. It's not necessarily 
specific to vacuum tubes. It just has a nice, a lot of nice features that lend themselves to that. So it has a zero to 400 volt regulated supply. It has a zero to 40 volt uh, supply. It has a zero to negative 100 volt supply. It has a 6.3 volt AC supply, a 12.6 volt AC supply, and a Variac all in one box. So it's it's kind of like every possible thing you could need, they just give you right there. So it's it's really nice. And I was using it the other day, and I, I, I realized like, this thing is pretty old. I've never looked inside of it, and I've never serviced it. It just It's always worked well. So I, I brought it home and I just cracked it open the uh, the other day because I was just like, hey, you know, kind of want to check on the caps. And like every capacitor, every electrolytic capacitor has almost had its head blown off. <laughs> <laughs> all of them works, are though. All of them are don't you know what's crazy is yes, it still works and it's not noisy. Th- that's one of the weird things. And I have no idea what what how old this thing is, but those caps are ancient. Um, and, and the thing is like, they're, they're all domed. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I should not turn this on again ever. (laughs) Uh, so I started, I started just a quick little side project of, of recapping this thing. There's a handful of like soldered in place electrolytics that, you know, those are things I can get from Mauser, but the main capacitors in this old supply are the old ones, you know, the old, you know, clamp mount uh, electrolytics, you know, where they have like a, the clamp is actually riveted to the case and then the capacitors are screwed in place on these things. And I, I would like to replace these capacitors with something similar, uh, at least similar in size, because I don't want to go and, you know, design something. I just, I, I want to drop in solution for this. And surprisingly enough, this is not necessarily the easiest thing to find. Uh, because most caps are not like this anymore. So there's, there's one cap that's a 2500 microfarad 75 volt there's three caps that are 500 microfarad 75 volt and then there's two caps that are what is it 500 microfarad 200 volt uh most of the caps are 35 millimeter diameter the two 200 volt caps are 40 millimeter uh diameter caps and those are not super common if you go to if you go to mauser or digikey and search for it it's not like you have hundreds of choices. You have like two. And in a lot of cases, those caps are like $30 a piece. You know, I don't, I don't want to be doing that. So <laughs> I've been, I've been kind of like trying to piecemeal, like, where can I get this cap and where can I get that cap? And I think some of them are available on Mauser where I can get them for maybe like $15 a piece. But funny enough, most of these caps I've been able to find at least something that will work from my guitar amp vacuum tube, uh, suppliers, because these same style of caps were used in guitar amps for so long as main power supply ripple guys. Makes sense. So I might just end up putting guitar amp caps in this thing because, hey, whatever. If it works, it works. And the whole thing is just, it's the right size. That's kind of all that matters. Are they going to be fine gold caps? You know, uh, no. Unfortunately, fine gold doesn't make it in that in that size. But they will probably be JJ caps, or at least some of them will. And JJ makes good stuff. So Never heard of them before. If you've ever heard of them, I can't remember where they're. I think they're in Czechoslovakia. They make vacuum tubes and big caps. Just big caps? Is that what they're called? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a if I had a capacitor company, I might just call it big caps. You got you got to share a picture of those crazy looking caps. 
I've got, I've, I'm looking at the supply right now on my coffee table. I left it open so I could take a picture right after this podcast. So you, you guys will get to see some puffy caps and I can't believe th- th- these, these caps, gosh, what do they say? Um, I don't remember what the name is. Like starts with a T regardless. They were made in Mexico like decades ago. Uh, so it's one of those things where like they're, they're long draw dried out. I'm really surprised that this thing actually still regulates but it does it's really i mean i've had no problems with it and i've used it for years and this is the first time i decided to open it up i bet i wonder if you even need those caps uh i bet you if you start pulling some current it'll start to oscillate a bit yeah well the thing is i think most of these caps are the input filtering caps that come basically right off the rectifier they're the stuff that comes pre-regulator and the regulator, if it doesn't have that smooth stuff, it has to do more work. So it's it's I'm probably beating the hell out of my, the regulator in there, and it's probably heating up more than it needs to because it's having to do extra work. And I'm just surprised. Maybe maybe this thing is way over designed. I'm just surprised that I'm not getting more noise on the output because it just from the looks of these caps and their age, they can't be doing barely anything you know but maybe they are i don't know maybe they were designed to you know last with very little electrolyte in them who knows so you did a little bit of feature creeping i was thinking about a little bit of feature creeping with this device i thought it would be really really cool to add some digital control and like a keypad to the front of this thing because everything is just potentiometers this this power supply would be really really useful if i could just type in a voltage and it would just give it to me I don't know if I really want to do that because tracing this thing out looks like a nightmare. So I don't even know how the circuit works. I, I was thinking about tracing it out because I've looked all over the place and there's forums where people are asking, hey, you know, I have a Hickok 5055 and it doesn't work. Does anyone have a manual or a schematic? And nobody has it. So I could be that guy and, you know, write out a schematic. But gosh, it's it's a rat's nest inside. It would take forever just to draw it out. Is it? It's not a circuit board in there then. Is it point to point wiring? It's half and half. Uh, there is there's two circuit boards in there, um, and they all have flying wires that go absolutely everywhere. Because most of the most of the high powered devices are off board, mounted to you know some wall in the chassis. I mean, this thing has I think five transformers inside of it, and they all have their own you know jazz going on and stuff. And, ah. I like it, but it probably weighs the you know mass of a dying sun. Oh, it is. It's very heavy, but it's built like a tank, you know. Well, hopefully, uh, it keeps working. As, I mean, especially because it still works, and who knows when this was built? You you know, you shouldn't measure the noise at different load levels for all the channels before you replace caps, and then do it after you replace caps and see if it actually changed anything. You know that that'd be that'd be fun. Um, this thing has a maximum output of I think forty watts is what it can deliver. It can it can deliver a hundred milliamps at four hundred volts or one amp at forty. So it's the it's the heaviest power supply in the world, but delivers the least amount of power. It's yeah, well, it's way more specified. Like it's it, it's clear what this was intended for. What what's nice is you can use it for anything though. Well, almost anything. Because I mean, if you need if you need more than forty volts, lots of times you don't need that much current. So use the high voltage rail. You know. So going to the RFO. So this is a cool one. Um, I found this last week for the 
Kentucky Derby. So the Kentucky Derby is a social drinking event here in the United States uh, where horses race. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like NASCAR, but with legs instead of wheels. Well, NASCAR is seen as a trashy thing to do here in the States, where Kentucky Derby, for some reason, is like classy. But it's exactly the same thing, except it's with horses. It's just classy NASCAR. It's classy NASCAR, yeah. Class car. Class car. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they they actually built a, I can't remember what TV show it was for, but there was a custom PCB badge built for like the, the announcers or the people who were on TV. And the cool thing about it was it actually has an animatronic horse on it that moves. No, that's cool. Yeah, so when like badges, like the badges get close to each other, the horse starts running. Very cool. So I thought that was really cool. How did how did it how did it sense proximity? I, I think it has like an RF chip or something on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really cool. I guess the yeah, so the the whole badge life thing is extending to everything, really. The Kentucky Derby. <laughs> what what would we just call it? Class car. Class car. Yeah. Yeah, classy NASCAR. <laughs> yeah, rich folk NASCAR. I like that. <laughs> cool. So I've I had a, uh, a a pretty interesting thing happen last week at work that I thought would be uh, pretty fun to discuss. So last week we had a few of our units enter into our test room, and they seem to be having a bit of trouble uh, with their testing, and they were doing some kind of funky stuff. Uh, we spent, you know, uh, some time here and there kind of investigating them. They were a little bit on the back burner. Um, but uh, as as time, you know, progressed, the the issue was was kind of odd with them. They didn't seem to be responding the way we wanted to. Bill, the the owner of the company, came up and he he took a look at them. And, and it didn't even take him that long. He just looked and he goes, why are all these capacitors different colors? They're they're all the same. They're supposed to be the same cap. And we were like, oh, no. We might have an issue here. So we popped the caps off and found out that all of those caps that were, they were actually 10 microfarad 0805 caps, they were all shorted or close to shorted in, in some cases. So they had a really low uh, ESR, like yeah. non-existence ESR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. So, uh, so That's what you want in a cap, right? <laughs> Low ESR. Very low ESR. Yeah, it's a it's a short ohm resistor. So we uh, yeah, so we we were like, okay, well maybe we had some bad units. So we checked some other units that had also had these caps installed, uh, and they were also failing in our test department, and uh, found out that we've got a bigger problem on our hands because a lot of these caps are starting to fail. So we immediately go and quarantine these caps. Uh, on the reels and start looking through some of the reels and inside the tape on the reels we were finding that the caps were different colors in some of the trays on the reels and some of the caps even had some physical damage to them uh so it was like oh no okay so we gotta we we gotta take these caps and do some testing on them and i and i ran and 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 did a bit of a bit of testing on them um some of the things that I did were just testing cap values and, and things like that. But one of the big things I did was uh, just charge them up, apply voltage across them, and applied varying different voltages to groups of capacitors, discharge the caps, and then test their value, and then you know rinse and repeat and things like that. And one of the things that I found was before 
charging the caps. I tested them, and they all they all were pretty much in line with what you'd expect. However, they were way on the low end of their tolerance. But as soon as I charged them up, discharged them, even if it was just a short period of time and a low voltage, I'd test them again, and their capacitance value just dropped. Uh, just completely went you know, haywire in, in, in a sense. And it looks like what we, what we got was capacitors that were marked as 25 volt when they were probably something more like 6.3 volts. And we were, you know, just generally over voltage, uh, over volting them and causing damage to the dielectric or whatever happens when you overvolt a little cap like that. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I thought it'd be the, uh, a fun little thing to talk about because, you know, it's possible to receive counterfeit capacitors. It looks like we may have had that happen. So we've quarantined all the caps and we're just going to, you know, we're going to pitch them and we've already dumped them out of inventory and things like that. But it's also like, ah, crap, because we got to we got to replace some. Luckily, they're all in our test department right now, so we can we can replace them all in in there. But you got to watch out because like it can come and bite you in the butt every once in a while. Yeah, the the interesting thing about that story is you're saying that they're different colors. I wonder if they're recycled parts. You know, it it may have been that somebody went with tweezers and just put them in tape one by one by one. Who knows? I'll send you a um. There's a PDF I found of a uh, company that did some investigation into counterfeit parts, mm-hmm. and basically, like what I just said with recycling parts, totally happens. People will just rip the caps off. I bet you you have real there. I bet you some of the caps are what you want, which is whatever fair, uh, whatever capacitance at twenty five volts. Yep. And I bet you, but I bet you that when they took them off the boards, they just sort them by size, and that's it. Uh, right. Yeah. It absolutely could be. Yeah. Or maybe they, yeah, they just test for the the capacitance, and if it's close enough. I mean, the thing is, these were supposed to be ten percent caps, and just directly off the reel, they were testing. Uh, like 12% low. So they were already out of tolerance straight off the reel. Uh, so that means that they've been reflowed before then. Maybe. You never know. Because actually, when you reflow, I, I know this is true with resistors. Uh, Tom Anderson from the Slack channel actually told me about this is when you have like a 5% cap, uh, not 5% cap, 5% resistor and you reflow it, it actually, the tolerance widens. Hmm. And the more times you heat cycle the resistor, basically, the wider its tolerance gets. So that's why, like, sometimes you have to go with 1%, even though at the end of the day, you still get, like, 2%. I guess is that because you heat it up and, and things kind of move around and then it solidifies in a different crystalline structure or something? Yeah, I never asked him why that is the case, but it makes a lot of sense. And the couple papers i've read on the subject kind of reinforce that yeah yeah so i bet you i bet you those capacitors have been reflowed before it, it very well could be although you know i was able to change the um the capacitance value significantly just by applying a voltage to them that's yeah uh and with and this is without you know myself reflowing them and i know that ceramic capacitors have voltage dependence uh, so, it, you know, I, I made sure to properly discharge the caps before I tested them a second time. So I think I've, I, I, you know, if there was any voltage dependence, you know, just having voltage on the terminals, there shouldn't have been any. I, I, I took my time discharging them. So I, I'm, I'm really confident that that's, you know, that I, that myself charging them up, I, I changed them somehow. And 
that's not good. <laughs> They're probably damaged. Yeah, and and we usually buy, you know, we usually buy 25 volt, excuse me, or higher because our Eurorack systems run on, you know, plus minus 12 volt. And most of the time these capacitors, in fact, basically never these capacitors will ever see the full 24 volts. It's just we we always buy above the 24 volt rating just so that we're always safe on that. Um, but I, I really do think that we got misbranded capacitors and these capacitors were Samsung capacitors. Um, you know, they weren't like some rando, uh, mm-hmm. capacitor thing. So I think, yeah, I think we got boned on some stuff there. Yeah. That happens sometimes. So, cool little, cool little thing. Luckily we, we found it and we're able to identify it very quickly and there's not a huge impact. I could see this being a really, really big, bad thing. You know, if you send out like thousands and thousands of stuff with these on it, it's just like, oh my god, what do you do? You gotta take all the part, all the things back. <laughs> yeah, you gotta take. Yeah, and and we, I, I would say that we got lucky because they actually failed in general catastrophically in our test department. So, you know, they 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 failed at a place where we could stop and be like, huh, what's wrong with these? Yeah, and in general, when you're when you're doing manufacturing and you change suppliers or you're changing a part you always do more testing on those units mm-hmm. and it sounds like that's what y'all did and then caught that caught the problem early which is always a good thing uh, yeah i mean basically yeah so luckily it worked out so the next subject is uh same thing with capacitors i guess capacitance multiplier video so you posted a, a dave jones video in our slack channel you know, and and I used to watch Dave Jones pretty religiously, and for some reason it's just kind of like I guess it just waned off. But the other day I I was just like, hey, what has he got? And I pulled it up, and it was a capacitance multiplier video. And I love these kind of videos where he gives uh, building blocks, these little like chunks of circuits that you can use because they're super useful. And I think a lot of people don't you know have a good grasp on these kinds of things. So he he has a whole video on capacitance multipliers, which. If you haven't seen it, go check it out because I think it's very valuable and it's really useful. Um, and it has some really specific purposes above and beyond what you would normally think. And not a lot of people use them. So capacitance multipliers are uh, a little bit misleading, but they basically you can use them to reduce ripple in a, uh, a power supply. But it's not necessarily only a power supply. It's just where most people typically use them. So if you have a signal that has ripple on it from, say, a rectifier or something like that, you can you can put a capacitance multiplier and you can squelch the the ripple on it. Now the thing is, a capacitance multiplier is is not a regulator, so it won't hold your voltage at a specific whatever. It will go up and down if the DC goes up and down, but it does take away ripple and it's pretty good at it too so it's kind of like a a low pass filter that's it's actually that's exactly what it is uh capacitance multiplier is it is is it an an active low pass filter is what it is it's a buffered yeah a buffered a low pass filter so one of the best or easiest ways to get rid of ripple on any signal is to low pass it right Mm -hmm. Uh, but you never no, I shouldn't say never it's really rare to pass a power signal through a low pass filter mainly because you have to pass it through a resistor before a capacitor and you're just going to dump voltage. So yeah, you have to pass it through basically a ginormous inductor or coil and then through a big cap to low pass it correctly. Yeah, well, right. And and I mean the easiest way is an RC filter, right? Uh, but w- there's no point in passing 
power through an RC filter because you dump the power into the resistor most of the time. So it's sort of, you don't get the benefit of a low pass filter uh, or the benefit of just a two component low pass filter. But if you add a transistor into the mix, what ends up happening is your signal doesn't pass through the resistor. Your, uh, your signal will pass through the transistor, but it gets the added benefit because the RC filtering is what actually controls the signal at the base of the transistor. So the RC filter actually does what it's supposed to do, but the transistor only allows the DC component to flow through and squelches ripple. So with only three components, you can get a really nice ripple filter. And what's actually interesting in Dave Jones' video, this is totally worth watching because I love this. He, he shows where he just takes a regular voltage regulator, like a 7805 thing, and he puts ripple directly into it and looks at the output and a huge amount of ripple shows up on the output because a voltage regulator is not fantastic at rejecting ripple. It's really good at holding a specific voltage, but its rejection ratio is pretty bad. So if you take one of these capacitance multipliers and put it in front of a regulator, you get both worlds. You get rid of the noise and you get the rock solid voltage. And one of the beauties is the RC part of the filter isn't actually passing power. Because um, if you use a BJT, the only amount of current that flows through the RC filter will be the base current. Or if you use a MOSFET, the only power that flows through the RC circuit is the very small amount that goes into charge up the gate of the MOSFET. So you can use Joe Schmo resistor capacitors and get the added benefit of the filtering with both of those things. So... It's a really great little circuit. Go watch the video and check it out because it's worth uh, potentially adding to your, you know, your designs, and they're cheap. That's what's kind of nice about it. So I will definitely have to go watch that video now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I have used these in a real design before, you know, in a in a grown up design. <laughs> so uh, I had a uh, I had a circuit once that I was designing that had um, a whole bunch of temperature probes on it, and it was galvanically isolated. And the only way that we could get power across the galvanic isolation is to use an isolated DC-DC power supply. Mm -hmm. So on on the other side, on the, the side that I was most interested from the galvanic isolation, I had a switcher that was, you know, powering up. Uh, and the, I, in reading the data sheet and looking at the power-up sequence, it could, uh, at power-up, it was a 5 volt, but it could spike to 7 volts. Now, I was using a bunch of 24-bit A to Ds on the input that were super sensitive and their, their data sheet said, you know, never, ever, ever go above like 5.6 volts or something like that. So I had a problem where my little isolated, you know, power supply could potentially for a very short period of time spike well above what my A to Ds are. And those A to Ds were really expensive, so I didn't want to damage them. So what I did was I actually put a capacitance multiplier in between them because I utilized an extra little feature of the capacitance multiplier. You can set, with the RC, you can set a time constant on that effectively where the transistor won't open up until the capacitor is charged up. So basically, if if my DC switcher spiked to 7 volts, the transistor wouldn't allow any of that voltage through because it was still charging up and it would slowly like time up uh, and and open up. So it was a way to squelch that power on cycle oh, so it, and still protect. Yeah, you made a uh, slow start. 
A slow start, yeah. But it also, any ripple that came from the switcher was also squelched by the capacitance multiplier. So uh, I didn't necessarily care too much about the exact voltage that was coming off of it because I was still regulating it afterwards. Uh, but it, it ended up working out really, really well. So Brandon asks, he asked this in that email, uh, what do we think, so I think he's talking to Steven and, and I, think of engineering paper that is green and looks exactly like graphing paper, but isn't. All my professors require it uh, this semester, and I'm exceptionally fond of you and Steven making fun of your respective academic institutions. <laughs> Ignore my request at your peril slash benefit. Oh, I guess we better answer this. <laughs> yeah, but I guess we better answer it. <laughs> so did you did you have to use uh, engineering paper? Uh, I used to use it all the time, but I don't have any right now. I, I love drawing on it. I do too. I really like it. It's got like the nice front, and then if you flip it over, it has graph paper on the back. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can sort of see the graph paper through it. <laughs> yeah. I really liked it for when I was in school. I really liked, basically, I was getting, I got my, all. I did all my notes in it because it's really nice because you could write normal uh, words, I guess is the best way to put it. Your notes would go in on one side and then. <laughs> normal words. And then you can do diagrams on the, on the back side. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was super great. Um, I remember having a, a multiple professors, and more than one, that uh, if you turned in your homework on anything but that, you'd get an automatic zero. Didn't matter if it was perfect; uh, that was required. See, I didn't have I didn't have a single professor require this stuff. Oh, you chose to use it. Yeah, I just chose to use it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I like writing on it. For for the first couple of years out of college, I I actually purchased some and I used them at at work. And I, I yeah, I I really like it. I don't I do not get why it's a requirement. I do not because I mean in the real world nobody uses it unless you just like it. Yeah, like nobody requires it. That, so that's interesting. This you had professors that required it as well, like Brandon does. Oh yeah, 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 and 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 I remember griping about it then because it wasn't cheap. It was like three times the cost of you know graph paper or whatever paper you wanted to use at the time. Ah, so that's why he's complaining about it. Yeah, well, or wants us to complain about it. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I had a professor who was you know for lack of better words he was a pompous ass, and he he was one of the first professors I had. No, 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 one of the first classes I had with this guy. He he taught an entire lecture on why engineers were better than doctors and why they were like more necessary to society than doctors and they do more good than doctors and it was just like wow you know screw you dude like i want to be an engineer but i'm not i don't want to be an ass about it you know and <laughs> and, and, and he kept he kept going on this whole like tangent like anytime anything would be difficult he went on this tangent about the fact that b-17 bomber wings had to flap I think his, his his number was they had to be able to flap 35 feet in, you know, the, the winds over Normandy or whatever he was saying. And it was this whole thing about, like, you think the engineers had to work that out? Yes, they had to work that out. And they're better than doctors. And it was just, <laughs> oh, God, it was dumb. But he, he was the guy who was, like, engineering paper or nothing. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. You know, and and at the same time, like man, now this looking back, this is really weird. He, he had like a really like this favorite student in the class, and he really made it clear that that student was his favorite. And this student 
never paid attention in class and he kept drawing pictures of guns on his computer but in like autocad like he was making like these really flawless pictures of guns in autocad and uh and this professor really loved that kid and he'd be like look at what this guy could do and he'd show it to the entire class and there'd be like a picture of a handgun up on the on the screen that is really weird it's super weird looking back but that was back (laughs) when i wasn't an electrical engineer um i think that guy kind of made me want to switch majors to double E because I was like, wow, these aerospace guys are super weird. <laughs> so there's my engineering paper rant. Did you have any electrical engineering students? Uh, not students. Professors require this graph paper? No. But just, so it's just aerospace. It was the mechanical guys. Okay, so that might be why I didn't have any because I... Well, I know I, in petroleum engineering, no one cared, but it's because it's petroleum engineering. Because no one cares at all in petroleum engineering. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Just dig a big hole in the ground and oil comes out. <laughs> yeah, right. And make, you know, $200,000 a year. Yeah, yeah. At Texas A&M is, uh, sorry, is number one for petroleum engineering in the nation. And uh, I, I had some friends who left. They were 21 years old, and they were making $110,000 a year. Because when I went to school, actually, UT was number one in petroleum engineering. Basically, it's like A&M and UT, like, flip. Yeah, they fight for it. I, I remember um, your school was, like, 15th for electrical, and mine was 17th or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it worked. UT was number 10. 10? E. Okay. Yeah. It was like the highest ranked public school for electrical engineering. At least that was back when I was there. And then they tore down the electrical engineering building and then like plummeted. Oh, did it really? Well, because they didn't have a building anymore. And then they rebuilt the building and they went back up. I don't know what it's at now, though. Yeah, the, the crazy thing with the uh, petroleum engineering building there is they actually have a well there at the UT building. Like legit? drill, Like drilled well? Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah, they actually have a legit one there with a christmas tree set up and everything oh huh, that's cool so you can actually like practice on it i don't know what it was for <laughs> oh it just sat there <laughs> we just got to look at it I, I wonder if you could do stuff with it if you were like went further in the program i was only there for like two semesters as a petroleum engineer before i switched over so yeah so our next subject is it's not really a subject anymore it's uh, just a statement i guess um so tom anderson had uh some experience so let me back up a little more. Last podcast, we were talking about uh, 3D mice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and then we were talking about 2D mouses, which are just like the normal mouse you use. And then we came up like, what is what, is, what would a 1D mouse be? Right. And you said a potentiometer. So Tom Anderson says these actually existed, and they were rotary devices on your keyboard. And so it would just be... Yeah, I think he actually even posted a picture of, of an old keyboard with a 1D mouse. Yeah, so it's just a knob that or a rotary knob that you would adjust. And so it was for scrolling through text on terminals, which makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, and that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I could I could see, like, on basic code and things like that, I bet you that's really useful. And he said that the best thing about it was you didn't get carpal tunnel <laughs> using them. <laughs> People didn't know about ergonomics back then. That was back with like the old, um, you know, like brick mouse, you know, like ones that are basically just like a square. Like it was like a Nintendo controller, like the original Nintendo controller, just like flat on a table. Yeah, I wonder who thought the original Nintendo controller was a good controller to use to play games. Honestly, I love that thing. I think it. I think it works so well. It works well, but it has 
it has two corners that just jab into your the side of your hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why. Personally, I think the Super Nintendo controller is superior, and it's one of the best ones Nintendo's ever made. The SNES is a pretty good controller. It's really good. It's really, really good. So I think that's going to wrap up this episode of the MacFab Engineering Podcast. Yep. We were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. See you next time, guys. Take it easy. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or capacitor multiplier that you want Steven and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, if you know how to remove this conformal coating off this board, let me know. Tweet me at Longhorn Engineer. I really would like to get this board fixed. Also, check out our Slack channels where Steven and I hang out and where we get uh, suggestions to talk about you know things on the podcast. If you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.